when watching what Trump was doing, how he got to be first a candidate for the Republican Party, then winning the election, then the way he governed, I kept saying, I have seen this movie before, but I saw it in Spanish. And the protagonist was not Donald Trump, it was Hugo Chavez. It's quite amazing. They could not be more different. Incredibly different individuals coming almost from different planets. And yet the way in which they behave, the way in which they manipulated the political system, the way in which they operated is uncannily identical. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Nearly two years ago on this podcast, I asked listeners to start engaging in measures of social distancing. A new deadly virus was rapidly spreading around the world. It was pushing emergency rooms to the limits and sometimes beyond the limits in many places from New York City to Italy. And we didn't have any effective vaccines against it. We barely had any effective treatments. Well, thankfully, two years on, the situation has significantly changed. We now have highly effective vaccines and boosters that protect most people who want to avail themselves of them against this disease. We are, and people have not really taken this on board enough yet, getting very effective pills that people can take at home at the beginning of an infection. And in laboratory studies, we seem to further reduce mortality and death by about 90%. This radically changes the situation we're in. Tragically, a lot of people have not decided to get vaccinated because of a skepticism about these vaccines. When they become seriously ill or if they die, we owe them our compassion. Nobody should engage in schadenfreude at the death of a fellow human being. But we do not owe them the maintenance of restrictions on the life of everybody in order to shield them from the consequences of their actions. Some people will remain vulnerable even then. But the amount of safety that people can enjoy today from infectious disease is vastly higher than it was 50 or 100 years ago. 50 or 100 years ago, we did not make the choice of stopping our lives to minimize mortality. And it would be a mistake today to accept permanent restrictions on social life and the functioning of our society to avoid any risk of mortality from COVID. That is not the choice we've historically made with regards to different infectious diseases. It is not the choice we make with regards to driving. It is not the choice we make with regards to any number of other activities which impose some collective risk. And so it is time to drop nearly all of the remaining restrictions because of COVID. It is time for children in schools to be able to take off their masks. It is time for government offices to return to full functioning so that people can get access to survivors' benefits from Social Security, which currently in many cases is not the case. So they're able to renew their driving licenses 
so that they're able to actually get the core benefits of a state which improve people's lives. And it is time to, for all of us to stop making every social engagement a matter of risk-benefit analysis. Here's a warning. We do not know what future strains of COVID might look like, and we do not know what other kinds of pandemics we might face. We may once again find ourselves in a situation where we have to engage in some form of social distancing to protect ourselves and for the collective good. And if that situation returns, I hope that I shall be one of the first, as I was one of the first in March of 2020, to say that it is time for renewed restrictions. But for now, with vaccines plentifully available, with new drugs being mass produced, with the Omicron wave rapidly receding, it is time not to cancel everything as I wrote in March 2020, but to open everything. My guest today is Moises Naim. Moises is a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the host of Effecto Naim. He is the former editor-in-chief of foreign policy and minister of trade in Venezuela. Moises wrote a really interesting, influential book called The End of Power, outlining the ways in which it is becoming harder to keep, to wield, to use power in the world a few years ago. Moises now has a new book called The Revenge of Power, showing the ways in which some politicians and dictators, but also some corporations and other institutions are trying to bundle powers in their own hands, in part as a reaction to these earlier developments. We had a really interesting conversation about the state of the world today, what has changed over the last 10 years, and how we should think about the threat of concentrated power and the threat of insufficient power in the world today. Moises Naim, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be with you, Yasha. Thanks for inviting me. I really look forward to this conversation. I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and we've become good friends over the last years. You wrote a really influential book nearly a decade ago called The End of Power. Your sense at the time was that power is becoming easier to win, but harder to keep and harder to wield. Tell us about why you thought at the time that we were witnessing the end of power. Because you could see all around how power was fragmenting, disseminating, and people typically thought about that as a result of the internet and social media and all that. It was just an internet-driven conversation. And I knew, and I, my observation was that power was frailing and fragmenting and weakening as a result of a variety of forces, including, of course, the internet and social media and all that we know. But there were other forces that were limiting and constraining power and denying those who have power the possibility of continuing to do whatever they want. And there's a long list of factors that were driving that, which I grouped in three categories that I boldly called revolutions. 
I said that there was a revolution of abundance, which I call the revolution of more. There was more of everything, more people, of course, but also more nations, more currencies, more guns, more computers, more technology, more everything, more transnational criminals and NGOs. And there was more of everything. And that more was not just there. It was very mobile. And therefore, I added my second revolution, which is a mobility revolution, which essentially everything moves. You know, power often needs a perimeter where you exercise power and where those in that perimeter respond to your desires. But if everything moves and borders are porous and the costs of traveling, connecting, communicating become almost nil, then that also has a consequence for power. And the third, after the more and mobility revolution, is what I call the mentality revolution. There was profound changes in values, in attitudes. The World Values Survey that the University of Michigan continues to report how very basic, fundamental mores, cultural, religious, social, drastically changing. And that change undermines power. So the three revolutions determine and spin all the forces that were fragmenting and limiting, constraining power. I did recognize in that book nine years ago, and I stressed that that didn't mean that there were not huge pockets of concentrated power, from Goldman Sachs uh, to the Pentagon to the Vatican to the larger cultural and sports organizations contained a very massive concentration of power, but even those were frailing and had more limits than in the past. So nine years later, there's a long list of things that happened in these nine years, and I wanted to take a deeper look at the forces that concentrate power, what I call the centripetal forces. So my sense is that you describe the world very differently today than you did 10 years ago, but you don't think that you made a mistake 10 years ago. Actually, what happened, as I understand it, is that in part as a response to the end of power, in part as a response to the weakening of the ability to guide and steer the world because of those centrifugal forces, you've now had the rise of a countervailing set of forces that precisely try to respond to the problems posed by the end of power. So that you call the revenge of power. Tell us about what that constitutes. Those who had power were not about just waiting and looking how their power was being eroded or undermined. They took reactions, as you mentioned. They reacted against that. And the reactions were quite similar, even though people reacting were very different. So one of the very interesting aspects of what's going on is how extremely different political regimes end up having very similar reactions. So populism is often confused with an ideology. But as you are one of the founding fathers of the new thinking about populism, populism is not an ideology. You can have populists of the right, on the left, up and down, north, south. Populism is more a set of tactic tricks and strategy to obtain and retain power. And they use them. And they use them in conjunction with polarization and the sowing and amplifying of societal division and wedges. And post truth, which had always existed under the name of propaganda, but in fact, it has acquired a new hue and a new form, a new way of influencing the dynamics of power. 
And so what does that revenge of power look like, first of all, in the political sphere? How is it that these populists use these tactics in order to reconcentrate power in their own hands or in order to respond to the vacuum of power that these previous developments had left? It is a worldwide attack on checks and balances. You see it in different countries, and you see that you know the checks and balances that define a democracy are undermined from within. And what is very interesting is how hard to see these attacks on the checks and balances are to the untrained eye, to the naked eye. A lot of these changes are not uh, visible. They are boring, bureaucratic, small changes that end up having important consequences in the way freedom and democracy work. They are done in in a variety of not visible ways. And that is very important. And there is a long list of tools that they use to undermine democracy, but essentially to undermine the constraints on their power and countervail the forces of fragmenting power that are limiting their choices and options. So as I understand it, you think of populism as one of the three big tools that autocrats in general now try to use, the other two being post-truth and polarization. What are these different tools and how do they interrelate? Like populism, polarization has always existed. And I claim that polarization is like cholesterol. You have good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. You have something that can be good polarization, which is democratic. It's different groups that are polarized in their politics, but they interact and they compete and then eventually resolve that. It gets resolved in the electoral arena. And one of the groups gets to be the winner or create coalitions with others. And so that's good democratic cholesterol. And one of the problems in a democratic system you can have is when you have no polarization, you have no effective choice. An example that's become famous, but there was a big commission by the American Political Science Association with the most famous and serious political scientists of the time, which suggested in 1960 that one of the deep problems of America is that we don't have enough polarization, which meant that if you were really liberal, you were really conservative, you didn't actually have a natural party to vote for. And so what you're saying is, Actually, we do need some polarization, but we need the good kind. So how do we distinguish between the good and the bad? And why is it that the bad polarization is winning out at the moment? The bad polarization essentially blocks the government from working. It blocks ideas. It blocks initiatives that are long term. It's a politically paralyzing kind of political illness in which you essentially get a situation in which you don't treat a contender that has different ideas as a compatriot that thinks differently. No, you treat that person as somebody that doesn't have even the legitimacy. You do not accept that the person can have a voice or a role in any political system. And gridlock, the United States is an excellent example of the kind of polarization that creates a gridlock that forces the postponement of very important decisions that curtails the ability of those in government to function and to deliver, that erodes the legitimacy of democracy and feeds of the mood of anti-politics and so on. So good polarization is democratic and, and eventually creates a, a better environment. Bad polarization paralyzes decision-making and creates rifts that make it very hard to govern, very hard to maintain the social contract, very hard to make decisions. Most of the decisions that governments need to make are long-term, and many of the decisions require an agreement for long-term outcomes. And that becomes almost impossible to get. 
And so if we have populism and we have polarization, the third P, and I always admire somebody who manages to capture important things about the world in a neat alliteration, is post-truth. You know, none of the three Ps are new, right? Populism, polarization have always existed, and post-truth also existed. We called it propaganda. And it even had ministries. Remember Goebbels, he was the minister of propaganda in Germany. So this is not propaganda. This is propaganda for the 21st century that has all the tools and the technologies and social media and other forces that amplify and create political realities that we have not seen in the past. And so the three Ps interact with each other in this 21st century. The three Ps have different consequences and offer different possibilities to their users. So one thing I was really struck by in your thinking is something that I'd reflected on as well. I love Italy and I've spent a lot of time there. And when I first became interested in politics in the late 90s and the early 2000s, it seemed like Italy was in the grip of a weird aberration. You know, this odd figure called Silvio Berlusconi, one of the richest men in the country, was sort of undermining democracy in these significant, but from today's perspective, inchoate ways. And it just seemed like the tools he was using, which included those three Ps, were sui generis. They seemed to have something to do with a particular history of Italy, with a particular way in which he was weaponizing his money and his fame to influence the country. And it just seemed like Italy was a fascinating and worrying, but unique case. And you make the argument, which I find to be quite convincing, that actually, like in previous eras of Italian history, Italy was ahead of a curve, that something about Berlusconi really was a premonition of what was to come in other countries. Absolutely. He was and continues to be, even it's an old age, a master in the uses of the three Ps. He was excellent. You know, his ascent had a lot to do first with the powerful populism, the whole notion that there was a corrupt, intouchable, thief-like Italy and the noble workers of Italy and the families and the companies that made Italy proud. And he was there and he mined the polarization that had already existed, you know, the populism that was already there. And then, of course, he was a master in managing marketing and in managing propaganda. He comes from the world. He started as a television advertising salesman. So he knew how to sell advertising. And then he uses soccer. You know, he decided to move into soccer. And he developed a relationship with his followers that is not unlike the relationship that uh, followers have with the rock stars or super athletes. And he was one of those, you know, in the book, I do talk about the politics of fandom, how the relationship of followers to their leaders now is not rooted in ideology or political programs, is rooted in identity, is rooted of the feelings that people have towards their sports clubs and their favorite athletes or artists. And similarly, some observers of Latin America thought that Hugo Chavez was a sui generis figure in that sense, a little bit like Silvio Berlusconi, and that the way in which he was transforming Venezuela at the time was to do with a specific history of the country and so on. Today, it looks like Chavez too was a harbinger of broader developments to come. Now, Venezuela is a country that you know extremely well. You grew up there, you were in high office there. 
tell us about the rise to power of Hugo Chavez and what we can learn from that about the revenge of power? One of the most striking issues that I dealt with is when watching what Trump was doing, how he got to be first the candidate for the Republican Party, then winning the election, then the way he governed. I kept saying, I have seen this movie before, but I saw it in Spanish. And the protagonist was not Donald Trump, it was Hugo Chavez. It's quite amazing. They could not be more different, incredibly different individuals coming almost from different planets. And yet the way in which they behaved, the way in which they manipulated the political system, the way in which they operated is uncannily identical. And the same things from the use of the media, the demonization of enemies, the treatment of minorities, the deepening of polarization and any kinds of wedges he could find. That was Chavez. He was a pioneer in the ways of all of this. And so how was that emulated and copied by others, not just Trump? Immediately, because one of the characteristics that these leaders have is that they export their autocracy and they export their methods. So very quickly, with significant support from Cuba, Chavez had three things, had a very attractive, charismatic image for him had a lot of money at that time. Oil prices were very high and he had an open checkbook that he could go around the world. He went to Africa and built hospitals and gave money to politicians and built an international network of support. So it was uh, very effective in exporting his Bolivarian revolution or what he called the socialism of the 21st century, which is neither. But Bolivia on the Evo Morales was a good example that closeness to Lula da Silva during his first presidency, the Kirchner's husband and wife that were presidents in sequence, countries in Central America and the Caribbean all were influenced. So they attempted the Ecuador during Correa and so on. You know, Chavez was part of this effort to make this way of governing go global and create a network of mutually supporting states that help each other in implementing it. One of the things that I've been struck by going around the world and talking about populism over the last years, especially when it really still was or felt like this new phenomenon around 2015, 2016, 2017, was the complacency of elites in many countries who basically said, all right, look, you got Trump in the States or you got Erdogan in Turkey, but this could never happen here in Brazil. We're a serious country. This could never happen, you know, here in Poland. This could never happen here in whatever country you might be in at the time. What did the rise of Chavez feel like to you in Venezuela in the 1990s? Absolutely. Uh, there was complacency. There was anti-politics. Behind all of this is the feeling of anti-politics. We call anti-politics this deeply entrenched sensation that nothing can be worse politically than what we now have. That we're willing to bet our democracy, our system of life on a new guy or a new person. First is the phrase that embodied it is que se vayan todos, you know, throw them all out. Anyone that had anything to do with power was uh, not credible, corrupt, uh, and an enemy. And so the feeling that nothing works in politics, that anti-politica, was a very important uh, source and a propellant for these politicians. And so one important reason why people 
were not more alarmed and did not do more to stop, essentially became the loss of democracy, was how stealthy some of these decisions were. I already mentioned it. Perhaps there's an anecdote that it's very interesting. The Cuban government had a very strong alliance with the Venezuelan government based on a very strong human connection between Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. And the Cubans were invited almost to occupy the country. They could do whatever they wanted. One of the first things they did is that they took over the control of the legal entities that certified all transactions, the civil registries, we call them. You know, if you get married, you have to go and get a document. If you have a child, if you sell something, if you buy something, if somebody dies, the registry that formalized the transaction or the new occurrence. The first things that the Cubans took over was that. And that was very invisible, but they essentially had the control of every transaction, every birth and every death, every company that was created, every company that was acquired, every investment, every everything, everything. And then they had a cable when immediately they connected the island with Venezuela through an underwater a submarine cable through which they control. So they had a control room in Cuba controlling a lot of things going on in Venezuela. And that was completely invisible to today in which people still don't recognize how important is Cuba's presence in Venezuela and how Cuba was very determinant in driving the country to this catastrophe because as an occupying power, the Cubans did what occupying powers do, which is they looted the country. One of the interesting things about Chavez, of course, is simply that he took over a long time ago at this point, over two decades ago. Same time as Putin. He arrived to power at the end of 1999. Right. So they're in the same cohort. Now, Putin is still going strong. He had left the presidency formally for five years and kept control of the levels of power. And today he is as powerful in the country as he has been at any point. In Venezuela, of course, Hugo Chavez eventually passed away. What can we learn from the transition from Chavez to Nicolas Maduro about the likely future of former democracies that have really been captured by authoritarian populists? Maduro has absolutely no need to look democratic. He, of course, tries to play the game and use the democratic rhetoric, but Maduro is a dictator and does what dictators do. He tortures people, he represses people. Venezuela is today a country that is clearly a tyranny and a dictatorship. Chavez would have been able, perhaps, to compensate a little bit of the anti-democratic behaviors and tone them down because of his instinct. He had a very strong social following. He had a connection to the people that gave him options that Maduro doesn't have. Maduro is not charismatic. Maduro was anointed by Chavez and Maduro is widely seen as an agent and a crook. The criminalization of the state in all of these countries is a subject we should talk about because it's another commonality that is different from corruption and is different from kleptocracy. But Maduro is an example of this kind of crookery and thievery that is now accompanies this kind of presence. But uh, perhaps, and I'm speculating, who knows, but perhaps Chavez had the political capabilities and instincts in order to manage the situation and therefore it would spare him the need to become a full-fledged dictator. But, you know, that's pure speculation. 
So that's very interesting. I wrote an article a few years ago in Foreign Affairs thinking about the downward spiral of populist legitimacy. And populist movements often come in pretending to be democratic and having some very real popular legitimacy at first. But then as people start to recognize that they might be undermining democratic institutions or as they simply mismanage the economy or face some kind of external shock to their popularity, they quickly face a choice between ratcheting up oppression and giving up some of their power. And so I think that there is this sort of bifurcation of what happens. Either the democratic forces manage to fight back and win, or sooner or later, these populist movements need to concentrate more power in their own hands. And I guess what you were saying about Maduro and Chavez is that one of the really important shocks to populist legitimacy can be the transition from an original political leader who has political talent in purely objective terms, who has personal legitimacy, to one that lacks those things and therefore needs to ratchet up the oppression. That's very accurate and very correct. And, you know, legitimacy has two sources. See, there is the legitimacy of origin and the legitimacy of performance. You can't be legitimate because a lot of people voted for you and your origin is legitimizing. It's a legitimizing forces that enables you and empowers you to make decisions on behalf of the people that have given you the legitimacy to govern them. So that's the legitimacy of origin. But there is a legitimacy of performance. You can also get legitimacy if things go well, if you manage the country, if people feel better, if people understand you know, the situation in very positive ways. So that would also give you legitimacy. And that explains a phenomenon that I have been observing, I'm sure you also have, which is, first, we have the retreat of democracy. In the last 15 years, every year, there's a, the rankings of democracy are going down. The number of countries that are considered democratic or significantly democratic has dwindled. It goes down. But in that same period, elections have soared. Elections are booming. We have never had so many elections of presidents, prime ministers, local authorities, governors of regions and state senators and state people. So how can you explain that, that democracy are going down, but elections are going up? Why are these autocrats so interested in having elections? Well, they're looking for legitimacy. They're looking to boost their legitimacy of origin because their legitimacy of performance is not delivering from them. And the other explanation, of course, is that, yes, the elections are booming, but most of them are tricked, are fraudulent, are not really competitive, open, transparent and credible elections. But they don't care. And so one of the interesting questions is why do they go through the contortions? of staging elections uh, that they, everybody, they and their contenders and the international community know that there are sham elections, that there's not real elections. And yet they go ahead with it. You know, Maduro just had an election recently that he got 78 percent or, you know, a very large percent of voters, which is nobody believes that number. But he uses it to try to at least have a talking point in his speeches. Yeah, it's one of the interesting ways in which democracy remains the only legitimate form of government in the world today. There's lots of forms of government that are not democratic. Some of them are even reasonably effective and successful in their own terms. But there is a sense in which everybody has accepted that the way to govern yourself is democratic. And so even these deeply autocratic regimes 
invest significant resources and take certain risks in order to pretend to be democratic, which is really interesting. Another element of the Venezuelan experience you just talked about is this form of international cooperation, the way in which Cuba was influential on Venezuela when Chavez came to power. You argue that there is a much broader way in which authoritarian populists and dictators now support each other across the world. What does that look like and how important is that actually? How much of the strength of the political dimension of a revenge of power lies in this sort of club of dictators? Well, start with a picture we just saw recently of Putin and Xi Jinping getting together and declaring that they are going to be supportive of each other in these troubled times. Let me give you another example that is currently happening. The south of Venezuela is a very mineral-rich region. A lot of gold, coltan, other minerals, gems, everything. It is being mined by guerrilla groups from Colombia that reach a deal with Maduro. And mostly it's about gold. So they mine for gold and they send it to Maduro that then sends it to Turkey which in turn launders the money in other Gulf countries. And also the Iranians have very presence. There is a very strong economic and political alliance between Maduro and his government and the government in Iran. So what you can see is this network of photocrats. These transactions require the active complicity of at least four or five governments. And those governments have in common that they are very autocratic. You know, a democracy will have great difficulty explaining the characteristics of this transaction. I find it really interesting to think about the two phenomena you've described over the last decade in conversation with each other. So we have the end of power, we have a weakening of power, and that then pushes a bunch of people to say, How can we fortify the power we already have? How can we win power? How can we use it more effectively? And you have all of the things we've been talking about for the last half an hour or so with a revenge of power. So, you know, this is, first of all, a general feature of social systems where, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And when you go too far in one direction, there are often these counter developments that bring things back into a form of balance. It's not always a good balance. At the moment, I think we're in a equilibrium where we have a lot of reason to be worried about but some form of balance often comes back. What's the next step? If we've started with the weakening of power, we have a revenge of power in these worrying ways you've described. What's the book you're going to write 10 years from now? It's very likely that the pendulum will swing back, but not because of the same forces. We are living in a world uh, that is being transformed by climate change. And that will have immense political repercussions because the changes in climate will create alterations that our political systems have not seen before. So artificial intelligence, pandemics, I think we're going to have pandemics for a while, if variations of the pandemics. So we, the world is going to be challenged in ways that we have not seen before. By all of these, and there's a very long list of new factors that are altering. I don't want to hear any more of this list. What you've said so far between climate change and more pandemics has already depressed me. Please spare me the rest. There are far more. And, you know, we are not equipped to deal with that. We're not equipped to make the right decisions for climate. We're not equipped to create the jobs that are going to be lost to innovations in technology. The financial structure of the world will have to change and so on. So what we are seeing is that the governments will have 
have a very, very hard time managing the many unprecedented challenges that they will face. And that will inevitably have consequences in political regimes. I've had a fear for a while, which um, I formulated at first in response to the internet and the way in which, according to figures like Martin Guri, social media weakens the power of the internet. But I'm now wondering whether it applies to the broader set of concerns that you have with the end of power and the revenge of power. And this is that the ability to keep control may depend systematically on whether you're a democracy or not, which is to say that if you're a democratic government, then a lot of the things we've been talking about so far weaken your power and your authority. The rise of social media does so in an obvious way because you can uh, no longer control the narrative to the same extent. There's a lot of centripetal forces. It becomes easier to challenge any form of authority, any form of power. And so it might weaken democratic governments in a fundamental way. The same may be true of pandemics and climate change and other big factors beyond your control. On the other hand, dictatorships may be able to deal with those challenges in a way that makes it easier for them to preserve themselves. Their response may not be effective. They may not be better at containing a virus. They may not be better able to protect their populations from the consequences of climate change. But they may be able to crush social media and free speech. They may be able to use a pandemic, for example, as we've seen in some countries, including Hungary, as an excuse for concentrating further power into their hands. So it may be that democratic governments see the powers further weaken because of all the factors you speak about. But dictatorships perhaps could become even more oppressive. Is that a worry you have or you think even dictatorships are going to be challenged in the power in a way that makes us swing back in the way you talked about? I agree with you, but it's going to be both. It's very important not to declare that all the changes that are going to happen and are happening are going to boost dictators and sink democracies. I think both things will happen. Some dictators uh, will suffer from the changes and others will ride them and strengthen their position. Uh, One of the things that the pandemic revealed, the pandemic revealed a lot of changes, but mostly it shows how things, institutions, models, and ways of acting that we thought were permanent are, are in fact transient. And of those that we thought were transitional are here to stay. It may be that the pandemic is here to stay in one form or another is going to be part of our lives. You know, remote work, working at home. At the beginning, we thought that that was, you know, just while the pandemic disappears and then people will go back to their offices. Well, it's not going to happen that way. So that transitional arrangement has become permanent. One of the biggest surprises and worrisome ones is that we thought that For example, American democracy, the United States of America, was here to stay in terms of its political regime, that it's a democracy deeply consolidated, deeply functional, and therefore it was going to be there forever. Well, now every day you see another article or another conversation or a TV show that uh, questions that. One of the best-selling books these days is a book about the civil war the form and the nature of civil war we take in the United States. So some things that we thought permanent are temporary and vice versa. And that includes democracies and dictatorships. I have a little theory called the chapter 10 problem, which is that 
any book that talks about big and interesting and important developments in the world is going to be very successful in the first nine chapters of analysis and then try to come up with some set of things to do about it in chapter 10 that are always going to struggle to be equal to the scale of a problem. So I think you don't suggest in this book that there's anything that you or I could do in order to completely transform these big structural developments you identify. But what are some of the things that we need to do in order to resist the negative aspects of range of power? And how much can we hope that this kind of action is going to be influential? So first, and he also refers, this complements my answer to your prior question, you know, democracies versus dictatorships is yet another manifestation of the monolith against the swarm. Autocratic dictatorship uh, are monoliths, uh, Stalinist in terms of their hierarchy and everybody follows the instructions from the center, monolithically. Facing and rivaling and fighting with democracies that are essentially swarms of individuals and fragmented interests and all kinds of uh, fragmenting and is a big disarray. So you have a big asymmetry. One of the biggest worries is the asymmetry between countries. You know, do you imagine a democracy being able to stage in Ukraine what the Russian government has been able to pull off of this thing? No. If Russia was a democracy, probably it would have had a hard time deploying more than 100,000 military of people in Ukraine and threatening to invade. So this is an asymmetry that is going to be with us all the time. As for what people like you and I can do, I think it's very important to make people aware. As I said before, a lot of the things are happening in ways that the non-experts, the people that are not thinking about this every day, are quite indetectable. That's why elections, for example, have now become not just the picking between candidate A with some good and bad things against candidate B also with good and bad things. Very often, these are just uh, elections that will decide if the future of a country is going to be more democratic or less. And we need to explain that. We need to call attention of people. We need to raise the flag that what is here, what is at play, is the future of freedom. It sounds bombastic and exaggerated, perhaps, but it's a reality. So if current trends are not contained by everyone, including commentators like you and me, we're leaving the field open to the autocrats of the world. One of the things that always strikes me in these conversations is how nationally siloed these conversations are. And often there is, I suppose, a succession of different forms of exceptionalism, which is that you start off with the exceptionalism we talked about earlier of saying, come on, the thing that we're saying happened in country X or Y, that's because those countries are weird and have their own problems. It could never happen here. But then there's a sort of inverse kind of exceptionalism that often comes afterwards, or to some extent at the same time, which is to say, all of the problems in our country, all of the ways in which our country are screwed up, really have to do with our history and our problems, and sometimes the fact that we are particularly evil and we're particularly bad, and so to understand what to do, we really just have to look at our own country. And I think your work helps us to understand the way in which these things are connected. So what do you think, looking at a country like the United States, is the problem with the exceptionalism here? And what do Americans miss about the condition of American democracy when we don't see it in a broader international context? 
I'm always struck in the United States by how easy it has been and how common it has been for foreign policy experts, for the national security experts, defense experts to underestimate the power of nationalism elsewhere. That's because the United States is a very nationalistic country in a variety of ways. So the strong nationalism here somehow creates a screen that doesn't allow policymakers in the United States to understand that in other countries, also nationalism is a very powerful force. In China, in Russia, in Iraq, in Vietnam, in all of these places, nationalism is and was a central determinant of the political dynamics. And so we have it again here. And we have the United States not getting the fact that other countries also have their strong nationalistic forces. That's fascinating. I mean, another thing that always strikes me is that there is a kind of nationalism of the right in the States, but there's also an odd nationalism on the left sometimes, which is a sort of sense of sometimes an isolationist tendency, but also there can be the positive exceptionalism and the negative exceptionalism. And often positive exceptionalism is stronger on the right. Our country is better than everywhere else. There's a negative exceptionalism sometimes on the left, not just in the United States, but in some of our countries too, saying there's something especially bad about my own country. So you say that the future depends on the five big battles we need to win. The battle against what you call the big lie, against criminalized governments, against autocracies that seek to undermine democracies, against political cartels with stifle competition, and against the liberal narratives. What are our perspectives for success in those fights? And what can we do to help? Well, one is a big lie, and the big lie is not just the one that Trump is pushing. You know, Brexit was a big lie. The whole notion that there will not be negative economic consequences for the United Kingdom from adopting Brexit and the disdain of data and analysis that took place. So there are some very important uh, big lies at work that need to be contested. And one has to be, for example, the nature and the functioning of American democracy. The second is something that I think is also not well understood, and that is the criminalization of some of these autocrats. We have categories about thievery and government and crooks. We call it corruption, or we call it, if it's big scale, we call it kleptocracy. But I think we have entered into a new area in which organized crime and criminal tactics and criminal organizations become instruments of state. And they are used by the government just first to enrich themselves and their cronies and their families, but also they use organized crime, large-scale transnational networks of organized crime. They use them as an instrument of state functioning and is a tool that the state now has. And we're seeing it surely in Putin's Russia. We see it in the Balkans. We see it in Africa, of course. We see it again. Maduro is a criminalized entity that has taken over a state. And so we have that. And you ask me for rankings or for assessments. I think more can be done in order to curtail. They need a certain flexibility in the financial system, in the logistics chains, in law enforcement. I think the world can do much better in containing a criminalized state. Then autocracies that export autocratic toolkit, that also can and should be tackled. And none of this is easy. Some of it is maybe impossible, but it's quite important. 
political cartels. In, in economics, there is a whole school of thought about how to limit the anti-competitive behavior of companies and cartels and conglomerates and how to protect consumers. We need that in politics. Economics should not be the only discipline that thinks about how to protect customers, consumers of political systems, the citizens, the voters. And we need entities that protect them. Among other things, they can, for example, be the impartial judges of what's truth and not. And with all the difficulties and complexities that that entails, I'm aware. But we need to do much better in creating forces against the existence of political cartels. And finally, the narratives. Again, between the narrative of the anti-monolith is very fragmented and inchoate uh, sometimes, but also its product needs to be improved. It's not enough to have a better way of defending liberal ideas and institutions. It is very important also that those ideas and institutions work better. So before going all out with the narrative, let's see how can we fix the obvious defects that some democracies have in the world today. Moises Naim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Honored and delighted to be chatting with you, Yasha. Great pleasure and thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.